instead of having these little puffballs and not eco-friendly art materials like glitter, you know, all those collage materials. I started taking those out and instead of glitter, we're using salt now. Instead of other collage materials, we're adding in feathers from our chickens at the farm and we're we're adding in flowers that we find on our hikes. So just really starting to look at what you're using in your art space because then, you know, art can be so messy. And I feel so good when I'm like sweeping up at the end of the day and all of it can be composted. Hello and welcome to the Slow Home Podcast. This is the podcast all about slow living in a fast-paced world. My name is Brooke McCallery. My name is Ben McCallery. Welcome to episode four of season two. We are bringing a conversation to you today with someone from Duluth, Minnesota. We are. I love Duluth. I love Minnesota. Uh, Only because of, well, no, not just only. We've been there. We've loved it. It was very hot, though, when we were there. It was. Really steamy. It was, actually. At the end of summer. But um, I bet now in Duluth it's quite wintry. Yes. Something like you see in Fargo. In Fargo. See, I knew you were getting there. Yeah. (laughs) Exactly. So you speak I'm speaking today with April Hepikoski, who is the founder and teacher at the most delightful preschool I think I've ever heard of, called the Little Barnyard Preschool. Now, essentially, what our conversation centers on... Yeah, what's it about? ...is nature-based learning. Okay. So the Little Barnyard Preschool has a program that is very much focused on First of all, child-led learning, mm-hmm. but the so much of that is then focused on nature-based learning. So the children spend time in nature every day, regardless of the weather. They are out hiking. They are out caring for animals on, on the farm. They are out just learning and exploring and experiential learning. Exactly. Being in nature. Doing. That's so good. So that's where what April and I focus most of our conversation on, because I think it there is so many parallels there between um, slow living and nature-based learning for young children but I think for anyone really and we talk about what that looks like in a classroom setting and how it's then extended out into the into the wild Uh, like I say wild as if they're you know Mm, hiking mm, mountains but they're they're outside every day Uh, and also the skills that it helps the children develop from such a young age some of this stuff that April and I talk about was really really interesting and I think that there is a lot of food for thought here for people who are who are listening who perhaps don't have a nature-based preschool or school nearby but would like to start to adapt and adopt some of those principles into their either their home or starting to encourage their local schools to bring these programs in. April has some really helpful information for people who want to do that about how to best present your case to your school administrators or, you know, your local preschool. Great. And so for more resources on April? So April's website, the, the preschool's website is yeah. thelittlebarnyardpreschool.com. Yep. They're on Facebook and Instagram under the same name. I will include links to all of those places are online in our show notes, which is slowyourhome.com slash season two. Uh, but also there's a, a list of books and resources that April mentions that again would be very helpful for parents 
grandparents, educators, educators yeah. anyone who's looking to start to to adapt some of this this work into. I really feel like there's a movement there. Oh, like, there is. You know, there's there's stuff happening where we are now uh, in the Rocky Mountains of Canada, where they go out into the forest and do forest bathing. There's specific programs as yeah. well that the, the kids are doing. Well, in Australia, there's there's bush schools. So Zan yeah. Holyoke, who yeah. I spoke with a couple of weeks ago, her in kids are in, two. in bush, school. bush school. And April talks about that. And she talks about how to begin developing these changes in community. That's the other thing that we discuss, how to begin to build a, a community program or a community group in your local community and what the, the flow and effects of that are because she has also started a, uh, a local community group for Duluth that focuses on zero waste and they're now oh, having wow. conversations with uh, their local government about changing policy in and their the police force in Duluth as well you make another Fargo joke I think see look the way I said it to April is that she decided not to wait for someone else to make the change both in the work she does at the preschool, but also in the work she does in her community. And I think if you take that away from our conversation, then that's a wonderful thing. That's a theme that has been going on quite a lot recently in my life. Fargo. <laughs> if you want to do it, you know, you've got to do it. Like the grassroots stuff. Absolutely. It's just the more I think about it, it's more like that's the way things have got to be done from now on. Well, I think it's the only way things are going to be done. Yeah. If we wait around for the government totally, to change it. Totally change my perspective on things. Mm. Wait around for the government to change things. You may be waiting a long time, particularly mm. if they're positive changes. Exactly. So people like April who are making, they've, they've made the decision to be the change, are so inspiring to me. And you'll notice that over this season, but also coming episodes of, of this season and following seasons, community and how to start making change will be a big theme because that's one of the things that I'm focusing on this year and so are you. Mm. How do we be the change? Yeah. We don't wait for someone else to be the change. Absolutely. So look, with that ranty, ranty pants. Ranty pants intro. Yes. Season four of Fargo is going to be on Netflix shortly. Great. Relevant. <laughs> While we're in Calgary, we stayed in the hotel that Fargo was shot in. That's true. We did. In Calgary. On purpose. Yeah. 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 We sat at the booth. We did. I'm not going to lie. That was a bit of a thrill. Wasn't it? Yeah. So cool. So Fargo aside, please enjoy my conversation with April and go and check out all of her wonderful work when you're done. April, hello. Hi, Brooke. How are you? I'm so well. How are you? Doing so great. Thanks for having me on. Thank you for coming on. I was just saying to you before... We hit record how excited I am to have someone as yourself come on to talk about nature-based play and early childhood because this is the question I am asked about a lot and knowing the work that you do and your background, I know you're going to have so much to share for people who are looking for more information, more resources, more you know, inspiration and motivation for increasing nature-based play with their kids or in their own workplaces. Um, so I'm really excited to dive in. Yeah, I'm excited to share what I know and yeah, right. <laughs> thanks for having me. Absolute pleasure. Now, before actually we do get into your work, which is running a nature-based preschool in Minnesota, um, you, when you introduced yourself via email, you also mentioned something that really piqued my interest, given that I'm very 
focus this year on on helping people develop local community, you know, like-minded people coming together around a particular issue. You mentioned that you have started a zero-waste living group in your local area. Um, And I wanted to talk to you about that a bit before we dive into the education piece, if that's okay. Sure. So first of all, I guess, when did you first become interested in zero-waste living? So my zero-waste journey really started when I got sick. I was diagnosed with SIBO, which is small intestinal bacteria overgrowth. And um, I was also diagnosed with endometriosis. Mm -hmm. And both of those things, I was told by my doctor that there were no um, more natural cures. And I felt pretty frustrated about that because the only option then um, from them was saying antibiotics. And I'm allergic to many antibiotics, and that really wasn't an option for me. And so that kind of just got me really started into thinking about how our food um, affects our health and how the environment affects our health. And I really just kind of went down a rabbit hole then because I was doing so much research. And um, now I have a natural practitioner that I go to who was able to help me with both of those things um, through supplements and uh, microbials and just through chiropractic care and kinesiology. And so both of those things really are the root of where this all started. And then it just kind of snowballed from there. And once my mind was really open to, you know, how plastics affect your health and just like eating more organic and local foods, that really opened my mind to zero waste living through just the research that I was doing. And and we have, we live right by a great lake here, Lake Superior. And I go there often. We have this beautiful beach park point, And I go there often to, you know, kind of recenter and rejuvenate, especially in the summer when it's warm and the swimming is awesome. And I went there last summer and the beach, I had never seen it like this before. And it was just devastating. The beach, the water and the sand was covered in plastic. Mm. And it was it was just a devastating sight to me. So I spent that two hours that I had dedicated for swimming instead to picking up all this plastic out of the sand and the water. And the next two times that I went there, it was still like that. Luckily, by the end of the summer, it was clear and there weren't plastic particles everywhere. But it really opened my eyes to that our city really needed a big change, especially mm. when we live right by this big waterway. And so that's kind of my beginning with it anyway. So, I mean, that, I love this story because you had, you decided to be the change. You know, you didn't yeah. kind of wait and grumble and, you know, look for someone else to provide a solution. You You began that solution yourself. And that's one of the things that I find so encouraging and inspiring about people like yourself, because you take it upon yourself to raise the standard, you know. So I guess, how did, how did you structure a localized zero waste living group? I mean, do you use social media? Do you meet in person? Yeah, so I've just been using social media right now. And I would like to eventually have it get to a point where we're meeting in person. I'm also starting to meet with there's a big Duluth group right now, and so we're trying to work with them mm-hmm. to start making changes in the policy in our city. So right now we're trying to pass an ordinance where there's a fee on plastic bags, plastic straws, or any straws 
are being offered only by request and trying to get rid of the eliminate the styrofoam takeout mm-hmm. containers and wanting to do more um, sustainable takeout containers. So we're trying to work with them right now to pass that ordinance in the city. So we're just trying to gain uh, signatures on our pledge to to start bringing this to the attention of the city council. So um, there's a couple different ways that we're starting to try to make change in our city. But um, really, the bulk of my work right now is through the social media page where I'm just kind of sharing little tips and tricks of how to live a zero waste lifestyle in our city. So that's fantastic. Uh, That's wonderful. Uh, What surprised you about the group, you know, and and how people have either embraced or pushed back against what you're sharing? Yeah, so many people have embraced it. And it's just, there's, there's a lot of activity on the page, you know, lots of people are really interested in it. Um, It is very overwhelming, um, especially when this is kind of a new, just kind of a new mindset, a lot of people are starting to take on. Mm -hmm. So I'm really trying to encourage everybody just to take it slow, and just add in little bits at a time as you can and really take pride and ownership of those changes that they are doing. Because often when you start these groups, you know, you are you are the voice for something so much bigger that a lot of people aren't even aware of yet. Right. And so it's just so important to keep that positivity within your page. That's a really good piece of advice, actually. I feel like that could also become, as someone who's running a similar community group, that could become like a stumbling block, I guess, if people come in with these this all or nothing sort of attitude, which I completely understand, and it's based in enthusiasm and passion, but it's also you know, a very quick way to burn out on something. So I guess as the person who's facilitating this group, keeping things positive, encouraging people to to stay upbeat about the changes they are making, that's a really great piece of advice. Yeah, thanks. (laughs) (laughs) And that's how I started too. You know, like I I didn't always live like this. I didn't live a zero waste lifestyle, you know, two years ago. And I've really just been working up to being able to like have a mason jar of trash for one month. I'm not even up to a year, right. you know, where these big zero wasters are being able to fill a, a jar in a year or four years. I am filling one in a month and I'm feeling very proud about that right now. And so I get where people are coming from that it is, it is hard and it, it does shift your mindset a lot and it can be overwhelming. So just always try to think back to where you started because that's where most of your audience is going to be. That's absolutely right. Yeah. And I think that's fantastic uh, that you're sharing that with people as well, because otherwise, like you say, we see, you know, the people who have been living zero waste for maybe five or 10 years and all the lessons they've learned and the changes they've made, but we only see the end result of that. And it's really easy Mm -hmm. to feel, uh, you know, like not enough, you know, our changes aren't enough when in fact our changes are a lot better than where we began, even if it was our first or second change. Um, uh, that's fantastic. Thank you. I think that will be really, I guess, um, really helpful advice for anyone listening who is looking to start something like that. You know, they, they see a problem and they think that they may be able to help come up with a, a community of like-minded people to start working towards a solution. Uh, and I think that you keeping it so simple and so positive has been very encouraging. So thank you. Yeah. Now, I want to shift over to your other passion, your other line of work, which is nature-based learning. So you run a preschool that is, 
Can you tell me actually what's the philosophy of the preschool? Like what what drives it? What's the mission of, of your preschool? Yeah, so I'm actually Reggio Emilia inspired. And so that's really a child-led, it's a child-led approach to teaching young children. And so it's really like my role as a teacher is looking at, you know, their interests, their inquiries, and really basing our, our curriculum, our activities, whatever you want to call it, our group times, and our environment around what they're interested in. So that's really the philosophy behind how I teach. I mean, when you first introduced me to you, you and your work, you described what you do as nature-based learning. So, I mean, we know the philosophy. I kind of understand that it's child-led. What caused you to, to kind of combine that with the nature-based learning? Yeah, so nature-based learning and child-led learning go hand-in-hand, in in my opinion, Um, especially when, well, anywhere it goes Mm -hmm. hand-in-hand. But where I live, it's, you know, we have the four seasons, and there's so much change outdoors in those four seasons. And really, there's so many inquiries from the children about what's happening um, in nature. And so when we are out in nature... We can base so much of what we're learning around the changes in our um, woods and in our nature play. Mm. So, yeah, that, they kind of they just go hand in hand so well. And what does nature-based learning look like, like on a day-to-day basis? What does it look like for you in in preschool with the children? Yeah, so there's many different ways that it's incorporated into my program. So. You know, indoors, we have a lot of natural items, many things out of wood, and we have, you know, little uh, tree cookies, you know, cut up a log and put those in our block area Mm -hmm. to have out for the children to play with. We use a lot of materials from our property to put into our art area. So a lot of our art materials are more compostable. And so I feel really good about the children making all these beautiful creations when we're using just nature. And then also nature play is outdoors. Mm -hmm. And so we go out on hikes and we play for, you know, 45 minutes to an hour out in the woods. And it looks different, you know, when from the beginning of the school year to the middle and the end of the school year, because in the beginning, the children are newer, the groups, the group of children are newer. And so oftentimes the children don't know how to play out in the woods. Um, They don't have as much of that exposure Mm. to, you know, just playing with toys. And, And we don't typically bring toys out to the woods with us. So nature play is a lot of imaginary play. The children are they use so much imagination and creativity when they're developing these themes within their pretend play and they're using each other to further their play. So they're they're collaborating with each other. They're asking each other questions. Their, their speech and communication just really develop a lot out there because they have each other out there. They don't have these distracting toys that only have one use typically. They have all these loose parts out in nature, and so they're using a stick as a prop. Mm. They're they're asking each other how to play, and you know, one's a mom, one's a baby, one's a father, and they're playing family roles. They're playing animals, and so we're out there in the woods, and that's kind of how it looks like now. And we do a lot of gardening. We have a nature playscape, and so we 
have um, our garden and we have a water pump that hooks up to our pond actually where the kids can pump water and um, there's gosh there's so many nature play things that we do here but so I mean I'm really interested about the idea and I'm sure part of it's developmental you know just at the age that the kids are when they come to the preschool but also do you think that there is a certain amount of sort of recalibrating kids to being outside for longer periods of time without I guess direct stimulus you know of those toys of um, you know, a specific set activity. Do you think that kids need time to get used to that and, and really develop that imaginative and creative play? Definitely. Yep. So in the beginning of the school year, many of the children, especially if they haven't played, if they haven't been here before, their radius around me is a lot closer right. when we're out in the, the woods. Um, they're not quite as comfortable. Many kids even get to the woods and they're like, how do we play here? You know, what do we do? And so it's really teaching them how to play out in the woods. Well, let's look at what's around us and, you know, let's start exploring. So oftentimes I'll see when children are first starting out playing in the woods with us, they will be in this exploratory phase. So they're really investigating what's out in the woods. So they're looking at the little frogs in the bog. They're um, looking at the holes in the ground that animals have made. They're, you know, investigating the mushrooms and the moss and everything outside. And that's really the first phase of it is just really being comfortable and understanding the the environment that we're in. And then it's typically about like a month and a half into the program when I really start seeing a big change in the children's play outside. So then they start moving from exploratory phase to a pretend play phase. And that is really where it starts diving a lot into the pretend play roles and themes and working with each other. And so, yeah, I really do think that children need to be recalibrated into playing out there because if they don't have that daily exposure or even weekly exposure to how to play out there, it can feel overwhelming to them to get out to the space and not know how to play without actual toys in front of them. So, okay, you notice the difference after about six weeks. You see that shift um, from the exploration kind of and into the collaborative play, the imaginative play. What do parents say? I mean, what what benefits and differences do your parents of the kids start to see? They start to see a lot more imagination at home. Right. I've also, they've also told me that they start seeing, when they're going out, out on hikes, the children are a lot more comfortable going off trail and starting to, you know, investigate things that are just off the trails, you know. So um, there's just a lot more confidence within themselves. They see a lot more gross motor development with this as well. And because children are out in the woods, they're climbing trees, they're trying to make their way over this uneven terrain. And so there's just a lot of development in so many areas of their that's fascinating that you see like a spike in in gross motor development as well. And I, I guess that makes sense. You're thinking about the actions that kids would be using, hiking and climbing and playing and crawling around. I mean, they're all multi – I mean, I'm not an educator, so I don't know the terms, but like you're using multiple parts of your body and multiple kind of actions and tasks at the one time. Um, yeah, that's really interesting. I hadn't actually thought of that as a direct benefit. Wow. Um, now – for Okay, so there's someone listening here who is sold on the idea of child-led nature-based learning, but their preschool doesn't offer a program like it. 
uh, or their school doesn't offer a program like it. How can people begin to bring these this philosophy into their own home and start to feel those benefits without attending a preschool like yours? Yeah, so um, things that you can do at home is, you know, just get outside. People, many people have backyards and many have woods in their backyard. Just the mowed area of your backyard doesn't have to be your only usable yard space. Use the woods behind it. That can also be your yard. There's so many wonderful things out there that children can play. And um, so that's kind of my piece of advice for what we do, what to do at home. And then also something at home you can do, too, is bring nature into your home. So if you have blocks for the children to play with, add in tree blocks. So find a a freshly fallen down tree and cut it up into smaller pieces for the children to use as blocks. Just bring in natural loose parts like shells and rocks and anything that you can find out in your woods or um, just in natural spaces. Yeah, those are some things you can do at home. I love that, uh, that idea of just cutting up the, the, you know, the fallen branch or the fallen tree. Do you think that some of the hesitancy over maybe, like my generation as parents has been in like hygiene and safety. You know, do you think that there has been, is this sort of a a course correction towards maybe a more balanced approach that's sort of pushing back against, don't get me wrong. I mean, hygiene is important and safety is important, of course, but you know, for a while there, I felt like kids were wrapped up in bubble wrap, um, which developmentally maybe has an impact as well. What do you think? Right. I think that can be a concern for families is hygiene and and safety. And that is also a concern of ours too. When we're out in the woods, I try to teach the children, you know, if you are climbing this tree, we need to make sure that we understand how to take risks. So mm-hmm. we're teaching the children how to assess a risk, which in my opinion makes them safer because they're starting to understand the risk behind what they're doing. And so if we can teach them how to assess risks and then know when it's appropriate to take a risk, and I think that is one of the best things that we can do for children is teaching them this. We have ponds on our property, and so we do a lot of water safety talking. Um, They know that, you know, in the winter months, like right now, they can't go on the ice because we don't know if it's safe yet. And so they have to watch the teacher go out on the ice before we can go um, boot skating, mm-hmm. which we just did today, which was so exciting oh, for the first time. <laughs> so, yeah. And um, so I think that, you know, when we as parents and caregivers really, you know, try to tell the children, oh, be careful, be safe, that can hinder them more. Mm. And it really need we really need to teach them how to be safe instead of just saying be safe. Let's tell them, you know, why am I concerned about you know the situation right now, and how can you learn to be safe within this? So I do think that that is a big piece of it. And then, you know, getting dirty. There's so much research out there, you know, that shows getting dirty is healthy for our immune systems and it's exposing us to all these microorganisms and really we are going to be healthier for getting dirty. I'm with you. I'm 100% with you. (laughs) I I just think that, I mean, that's how I grew up and that's how my kids have grown up. And I mean, there's like, there's, there's concerning levels of dirtiness or, you know, 
things that you don't want your kids to be touching. But of course, as you say, that's an opportunity for teaching and assessing risk and finding what's a, a you know a good risk and appropriate risk and what's not. Uh, and I think, yeah, I, I think that's just a fantastic benefit because I, I guess then that's teaching critical thinking skills from a younger age as well. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, they're really just starting to understand the reasons for why we do things and why we have to not do certain things. Yeah, absolutely. So what as you watch your children year in and year out come through your program, what, surpri- what has surprised you watching them start the year maybe a little tentative and, you know, to how they end the year? What's one of, one of the, I guess, the, the most positive surprises that you've seen? Yeah, um, I think it's just, it's maybe not as surprising as it is interesting that children just get along better outdoors than they do indoors. And they just, they communicate more effectively. And when we, when we give them the opportunity to play out in nature regularly, they develop these skills so strongly versus if they were just in a preschool setting where they were indoors for most of the day and then get to go out on a playground. You know, they're going out in nature, they're playing with each other, and they're really developing these relationships. They're learning how to compromise with each other. Sharing is more successful outdoors, I've Mm. found. So I think that's just probably the most interesting thing. It's fascinating. I mean, like I, way back in March of 2018, Ben and I did a 60 minutes a day in nature experiment. And I, as an adult, you know, as an adult who's fairly aware of my own moods and, you know, needs and and all that kind of stuff, I was absolutely blown away by how much gentler, more generous, kinder, more creative I was when I spent time in nature. Uh, And I can't even imagine the impact it must have on such young developing brains. And I took my kids for a walk just today uh, through the snow along the river and the whole time they played this game, you know, they played this imaginative game and they were playing roles and they were picking up sticks and using props and it, for me, nothing could replace that. I think, Yeah. yeah, and it's amazing that you see that sort of time and time again those benefits are more about how they the kids interact with each other and that, those learnings do you mm-hmm. um i don't know if there's any data or evidence or if it's just your personal experience on this but has there been any studies done or um anyone looked at learning outcomes later in life when kids have been brought up with a nature-based education Um, Yeah, so there's definitely been studies on um, nature-based education um, influencing children's learning and development, and recent studies have found that um, when children play out in nature, they are more resilient, Mm -hmm. they're more creative thinkers, and they have higher executive functioning skills. So those are uh, three things that we have found that have been positive outcomes for children exposed to nature play, and now we're starting to look at more curiosity learning behaviors and kind of the peer play behaviors. And so those results sounds like are being analyzed at this time. And there's just a lot more research coming out. I think that in the U.S. there's definitely been schools that have always incorporated this nature play into their programs, but it's definitely becoming more commonplace in the U.S. And so I think we'll be seeing a lot more research starting to come out about how it affects children in the long term. 
So those are the kind of the ones that I know right now. Right. But So if, if there's someone listening who is an educator uh, and would like to start introducing some more nature-based elements to their classroom, what are some things that they can do aside from bringing nature in? I mean, if, if the program is not there in their preschool or their school, do you have any suggestions on how they can start to maybe start that conversation with their school or their preschool? Or is there some resources for people to start with that give a really solid foundation on why this might be a good thing for their school to start looking at? Yeah, I think just be prepared, you know, go in with, um, you know, research that's been found that shows the positive benefits to nature play go in prepared with ideas of how you can incorporate that into your school. So if it's, you know, more of a public school or, or whatever it is, um, you know, just go in, initiate a conversation with your administrators with, and just come in prepared with your ideas and how you think this can work within your, within your um, requirements of standards, maybe kind of scope out the school's, nature play areas. Maybe you have woods right in, right behind the school that you can start using. And, and if they don't want you to go out into the woods, maybe you can create a kind of a nature playscape um, next to the playground. Mm. So you can bring in big logs and sand and stumps and big boulders or however you want to do it and, and get parents on board. And, you know, I think that at least when we've seen this done in our city with a school, they just, they so far have added in a nature playscape and then they're starting to, you know, they've been using the woods now. So I think it's just take small steps to get there. Mm -hmm. And maybe it's at first, it's just planting a seed, you know, just bringing up the idea, um, giving the research and how it can successfully be implemented into your classroom and then just maybe yeah scope out the area and and see what you have to work with first of all so I love that we've come almost full circle back to small steps you know you have have to start somewhere and start by having a conversation and then start by instigating one change and yeah I think the advice of being prepared as well is very solid because as you showed with starting your zero waste group I mean if we need to decide that we're going. We're the ones we've been waiting for. You know, we're going to be the change. And to do that, we need to start with a foundation of solid information if we're going to bring other people along and get them to see things the way we're seeing them. Uh, now, I have one more question because I have. I know for some reason I have a huge number of teachers who listen to the podcast, which is wonderful. And I know that teachers often write to me about clutter and keeping a simpler, maybe more streamlined classroom space. How, what are some, some tips that you have for bringing the zero waste philosophy into the classroom? I mean, I'm sure that it's not simple. I'm sure that there's so much (laughs) material and equipment involved, but do you have some suggestions on maybe where to begin just shifting towards a lower waste classroom? Yeah, so I started in the art area. I kind of mentioned this before, mm-hmm. but um, I I did not feel good about having children make these art pieces with these materials that would eventually end up in the landfill. Right. And because 
parents can't keep all of the artwork that children make in school. <laughs> no, we can't. And, <laughs> so I think if we can at least give parents an option to be able to compost or recycle the projects that the children make if they're not going to keep them, mm-hmm. um, that's a really great step. So that's where I started. I, I, I started just taking out the markers and instead we had colored pencils out and instead of having these little puff balls and not eco-friendly art materials right. like glitter, you know, all those collage materials, I started taking those out and instead of glitter, we're using salt now. Instead of other collage materials, we're adding in feathers from our chickens at the farm and we're, we're adding in flowers that we find on our hikes. So just really starting to look at what you're using in your art space, because then, you know, art can be so messy. And I feel so good when I'm like sweeping up at the end of the day, and all of it can be composted. So I think the art area was the biggest area where I needed to make a change in our school. And we we really don't make that much um, trash anymore. Because of that change. Right. And also with like, you know, whatever meals you're doing with your school. We just, we do snack time here. Um, Also encouraging your parents, if they have the children bring a lunch, I've encouraged my parents to have them bring food in reusable containers rather than Ziploc bags. Yeah. And again, just small, like small steps that will not only make the load lighter for you at the school, but also might start that conversation between parents and kids at home and to, you know, kickstart that that change over time as well. Yeah, I would agree with you though that the art and craft area would probably be one of the most like stuff intensive areas for both maybe teachers and parents. Yeah. <laughs> I get asked that question a lot. How do I how do I declutter my kids' beautiful artworks? <laughs> we can't keep yeah. them all guys. I'm sorry. I uh, know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, well April, thank you so much. What a what a fantastic like practical conversation. I think that there's going to be a lot of parents and hopefully educators as well, having listened, who can take what you've suggested and start to make changes in their home or in their school. Um, one last question, actually. Do you have any resources, any websites, any books that you that is a go-to for you when you're talking to people about developing more nature-based child-led learning? Yeah, so there's um... – I love the book Balanced and Barefoot. It's by Angela Hanscom. I think that's a really good read on nature play and just kind of the benefits of it. And um, so that's a great book. Um, other ones, my um, friend Sheila Williams-Ridge um, and Julie Powers just wrote a book, Nature-Based Learning for Young Children, and they have wonderful things in that book. Oh, they give tips for beginners and more experienced nature-based teachers, and they have examples for like letters you can write to parents about, you know, why your school is Im- implementing nature play and the benefits of it, and just so many more things. There's a lot of really good books out there about nature play. Um, Richard Louv's book, Last Child in the Wood Woods, is another one. The list goes on and on. So, but those are the three. Ed- I'd like to mention. They sound fantastic. They sound really excellent. I will have links to those in the show notes as well. Uh, But thank you again for all of your time and all of your wisdom. It was a delight. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. Oh, it's a pleasure.
Hi, Puck Pass.